Amen. Yes, Lord? If you have your Bibles, let's uh, open up to Romans, Romans, Romans. Romans chapter 12. Somebody already asked me, they looked at my outfit and said, Oh, I thought you were preaching today. <laughs> that was Ben. Good. That was good, Ben. That was good. Romans chapter 12. Today we conclude the 12th chapter of Romans. We're going to cover five verses. I know, I know. Slow down, right? Slow down, slow down. For some of you, for some of us, this might be the hardest section thus far in chapter 12. These are, these are tough words. We've, we've been looking at how God, uh, through the Apostle Paul, has been telling us to live out, to respond to the grace that he's shown us in the gospel. Uh, we call this the practical section or the application section. And Paul's given us a lot of things to, uh, to, talk, to think about uh, as he talks about having renewed minds and not being conformed to uh, this world, but being transformed as the Holy Spirit changes us. And then this section, uh, for some of us, just can be tough. Let me read to you verses 17 through 21. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never, he says. Consider what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So reads the word of the living God. Paul makes, or he has, two assumptions in mind as he gives us those instructions. The first assumption is this. People are going to mistreat you. People are going to do bad things to you. People are going to try to hurt you. This is not someone who accidentally does something that's not pleasurable to you. But he's assuming that there are people who we might say are, are out to get you. They are going to say and do things for the express purpose of causing you harm. Do you know anybody like that? Ever experienced Anything like that? As, as Bill had us reflect on how we may or may not have rested in God's grace this week, I, I would ask you to reflect on something else for a moment. And then you probably want to come back to resting in God's grace. But, but take a moment and think about in your lifetime, in the last week, in the last month, the last year, sometime during, during your life, think about people who have intentionally tried to cause you harm. My guess is it wouldn't take you very long 
for most of us, there's one or two situations, one or two people that in particular have left that, that pain, that ache, that wound, where they did something on purpose to harm us, to harm you. You have that person, you have that situation, a couple people. A lot of times people do it with their mouths, with their words. You know, that old uh, saying that we were all taught when we were a kid, it's a lie. Sticks and stones may hurt, may, may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a lie, right? Of course, some of the worst things you've ever experienced weren't sticks. It wasn't somebody beating you with the stick. It was what people said. And it's all the more hard, more difficult when you know, when you find out they were, it wasn't just a slip of the tongue, they were trying to tear you down with their words. It hurts. People may be directly speaking to you. Maybe it's slanderous. Maybe it's people who have spoken behind your back where they've talked to friends, family members, coworkers, neighbors, whatever, with the express purpose of trying to make you look bad. They're trying to hurt you with their words. Some of you in this room have been betrayed by a spouse you, who, who is now your ex-husband or ex-wife and have felt the pain of them speaking to other family members about you, lying, distorting the truth, or even if it is true, the things they speak are with the intention of making you suffer. Maybe you've been treated this way by coworkers, people who've spoken behind your back to other coworkers, people who've gone out of their way to bring up some painful things that, that just, again, aren't true about you, but they, they're trying to hurt you. And on and on and on the list could go. We, we've been there. We've all been there. We've all been on the receiving end of hurtful words, and probably some of us have been on the receiving end of, of hurtful actions as well. I was thinking uh, this morning of uh, when Dan got up and shared some months ago now about the vandalism that had occurred. I think it was a Sunday morning, uh, or at least it was early, and, and the awful things people had written on their, uh, on their garage door. You know, vandalism is one of, if not the most selfish things that anybody can do. Because at least when you're stealing, you get something, right? Uh, at, at least you understand why they would take that, because they want that, but vandalism is just pure evil. I, I get nothing out of it except knowing I'm inflicting pain on you. That's a hypothetical eye. I don't actually vandalize that. But, th but that, th there's really nothing more selfish than vandalism. And you've had people do that to you. You've had people uh, go, do other things that cause harm to you, that, that, that injure you physically, Materially, maybe you have been uh, had people steal things from you. And the list could go on and on. There's abuse, there's assault, uh, there's all kinds of things. Paul assumes when he gives this instruction, he assumes that people are going to mistreat us. And they are. But he also assumes something else. We're going to want to get him back. We are happy for the grace of God. We're happy for the good news of the gospel. We're happy that God forgives us. But when it comes to people injuring us, we want to go back to the old covenant, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, tit for tat, you did this, I will do this to you. We know we can't really do that, but he knows that it's often in our hearts. 
we suffer, we want other people to suffer as well. And so he commands us, doesn't just give a suggestion, these are divine commands through the apostle, never, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Now, before we look at those next few verses where he describes how we're to be, I want to show you where this is all going. Verse 19 is the crux of the whole paragraph. And it's really the phrase, leave room for the wrath of God. Or give a place to the wrath of God. That's where this whole paragraph centers. Leave room for him. If you take wrath yourself, if you try to pay back yourself, you are robbing God of what belongs uniquely to him. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Have you ever thought of that phrase? Vengeance is mine. It belongs to me, God says. It's not yours. It's not my prerogative. It's not your prerogative. It's not our right to take vengeance. It is God's right and only God's right to take vengeance. Why is that? Let me ask the question this way. Why are you offended when people hurt you? Why is it an offense if people do things to you they shouldn't do? If I were walking out in the, in the forest with, with Gabe and I saw a, a tree branch there and I took it and I snapped it in two, that offensive to the tree? No, no big deal, right? Nobody's going to think I'm a horrible person if I do that. Well, what if I grab Gabe's arm and I try to snap it in two? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I guess I won't use the axe illustration I was thinking of. <laughs> Why? Why? Uh, I'll allude to it. Why if I took an axe and chopped down a tree, which is like, ah, oh, no big deal, but if I you know, use it on my son, suddenly uh, there'd be more groaning and, and stuff. Why? What's the difference between Gabe and a tree? Someone goes out into the... <laughs> it's rhetorical, hon. It's rhetorical. I do know the answer. I'll get there. If I take a gun out into the woods and I shoot a deer or an elk, you're saying, hey, that's great. Hey, when are you going to have us over for elk burgers? But if there's a human being... Who takes the bullet? If it's an accident, it's a tragedy. If it's on purpose, I go to prison. Why? Now, I know you know the answer just like I do, but, but just think about this for a second, okay? So God takes the stuff that he spoke into existence and he makes one part of it into this tree. And then he takes the stuff that he made and he puts, the, uh, puts it into this form of a, of a deer. And then he takes the stuff and he puts it into the form of a man. They're all made from the same stuff. Why is it so offensive to mistreat the man or the woman, the human, but not the others? Just dirt put together. I mean, at the end of the day you realize you're just a bag of dirt. Men, when your wife calls, call you a dirt bag, I mean, you know, there's some truth to that, right? 
what makes human beings significant is because God has chosen to call man and woman his image, to give his image to us. He has uniquely exalted us to the place of, of worth and value. He didn't have to. It's his choice. That's what he did. And he said, this part of my creation is special. This part is unique. In fact, Jesus did not come as a goat. He did not come as an elk. He certainly did not come as a cat. He didn't come as a tree. He didn't come as he didn't even come as an angel, as the scripture says. He didn't redeem the angels. They don't have a redeemer. Sinful, sinful angels don't have a redeemer. But humanity. is what is precious to God, and that's why his son came as a human to save us, to redeem us. It's simply because God has chosen to take humanity and say, this is precious to me. This part of my creation is, is different than anything else. That's why capital punishment is not only acceptable, it's required. If you dare to take the life of another human, you forfeit your own because God has elevated humanity to such a, a level. Now, that's all God's doing. You did not choose to be dignified. We didn't as humans say, hey, we are going to be the image of God. No, God said you're my image. And as the creator then, he has the unique right to say, if you offend a human being, you offend me. If you harm a person, you harm me. He says, I'm the owner of this, therefore vengeance is mine, says the Lord. See, when people do things to you harmful, it's not really an offense. You're not worth defending inherently. You're not worth retribution and vengeance except the fact that God said that you are. And now the stakes are completely different. So when someone does something to hurt you, someone injures you, someone tries to tear you down, God says, that offends me as their creator, and I will repay. But it's his right, not ours. All the more so when we're talking about people who are his people, not just his creation, not just all mankind, but his special people, the, in the Old Covenant, the Jews, and in the New Covenant, the church. This text that he quotes, that Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32, I don't have time to unpack it all for you, uh, but there's a reason he chooses this, not just because the combination of words says vengeance is mine, but in the context, this is the song of Moses as, as Moses is about to die, and he knows that he's not going to enter in the promised land with the people of Israel. And he sings this final song. It's not a very happy song. What he sings to the people of Israel is, God has blessed you. He's prospered you. He's called you to himself. He's about to lead you into this promised land. He's going to give you everything your hearts desire. And you guys are going to turn to idolatry immediately, and he's going to judge you. That's a happy song, huh? I know as soon as I'm dead. I mean, you guys have been awful when I'm here. Just wait till I go. You're going to turn to these things that you make out of uh, brick and stone and, and wood, and you're going to create these gods and call them your gods, and God is going to be angry, and he's going to judge you for it. Great song. Not top 40 kind of stuff. But then God says, I'm going to do this by bringing a nation against Israel, but here's the thing. This nation that I bring, 
they're going to be arrogant and conceited and be convinced the reason they were able to overcome Israel so easily is because they're such a great nation, because they're so strong. They're going, to, they're going to take a vengeful attitude, and they're going to destroy Israel and take great pride in it. And God says, someday, after I use them as my tool against Israel, I'm going to turn and judge them for their approach to Israel, because Israel's my people. I can judge Israel, but who do you think you are to treat them like this? And he says, eventually, I will turn my wrath back against this instrument this arrogant, idolatrous people who are going to give glory to their gods rather than me for their ability to overcome Israel. And it's in that context that God says, I will eventually repay these people for what they've done to Israel, and vengeance is mine. So you see why Paul pulls this verse forward as he's, as he's challenging us here is because God is especially vengeful when someone hurts his own. It is no small thing, friends, to do something to tear down the people of Christ. In God's eyes, it doesn't get any worse. Read through the book of Revelation and the wrath that God is going to pour out. Those who get it the worst are those who despise Jesus by treating his people poorly. And Paul, verse 19 here says, never take your own revenge, beloved. Remember, God loves you. You are unique to him. You are special to him. So he's not going to turn a blind eye when people mistreat you. Take no revenge and leave room for his wrath. He will repay, he says. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. He's already set the table for this when he says, bless those who curse you, bless and do not treat poorly. And of course, he's just echoing Jesus' own words. This is how you respond. If somebody slaps you, turn the other cheek toward them. Someone wants your coat, give them your shirt too. When people mistreat you for your loyalty to Christ, he says, don't fight them, don't get them back, just go with them. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them a drink. He's quoting right out of the Proverbs here when he says this. And then the last phrase is, For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I love to read the commentators as they try to figure out what that means. There are some that say, Obviously, since he's telling us not to be vindictive, the burning coals on the head can't be a bad thing. Now, I, I, I just, I'm trying to figure out how burning coals on a head could ever be a good thing, but, but they try. And they say, well, coals were used in the altar for Israel, and so by putting coals on their head, you're, you're offering sacrifice or atonement or something. Maybe. Others trace it back to a, an obscure uh, Egyptian practice where uh, people would, you know, women would carry the baskets on their head. They would carry stuff in the baskets on their head, and you could put coals for their fire on their head so they could keep warm. Yeah. Um, maybe, but I don't think so. 
I think he means the same thing. That, so he's quoting, Paul here is quoting Solomon. I think Solomon means the same thing his dad meant in Psalm 140, which says this. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Paul, uh, David has been rehearsing these men who are against him. They are mistreating him. They are beating him. They're trying to kill him, trying to ruin his whole kingdom, everything. They're just trying to take him out. And David is saying, don't grant them, Lord, the desires of the wicked. Don't promote his evil device that they shall not, uh, that they not be exalted. Next verse. As for the head of those who surround me, head, may the mischief of their lips cover them. Next verse. May burning coals fall upon them. May they be cast into the fire into deep pits from which they cannot rise. Same phrasing, same terminology. The burning coals is a sign of judgment, the fire of God's wrath. And, and David says, this is, Lord, Lord, this is how you should treat my enemies here. Well, you can understand why people want to find a different meaning in Romans 12, because the whole point is don't be vindictive. And that's true. It's not my place. It's not your place to bring about uh, vengeance. However, it is God's. He said, I will repay. And I think what Paul's getting at is when we take care of those who persecute us and when we bless them and love them, our ultimate hope should be that they come to repentance and find forgiveness. And in that case, the burning coals went on the head of Jesus. Right? But it's also true that as we bless those who mistreat us, they are storing up wrath for themselves. If we as Christians don't respond in kind when we are poorly treated, but we bless and we feed and we provide water and, and clothes or whatever else they need, and they continue to treat us like this, on that day when God does visit them with his wrath, in addition to all their other sins, will be their failure to respond to his grace through us. Very similar to what he says in chapter 2 of Romans when he says, uh, my patience with you, when he talks about sinners, and God says, my patience is an opportunity for repentance. But as you continue to sin, and I haven't judged you yet, you're storing up wrath for that day. And we use the analogy of, of a, a barn where you just, you just like a, you're shoveling hay into your barn, and you build up this barn of wrath, and it gets full, and you go to the next one, and you're just shoveling hay, and someday... It will be the day, and God will unload all the storehouses of wrath on your head if you haven't come to Christ. That's what I think Paul's getting at here. That's what I think Solomon's getting at. That when we treat others in a way that's different than the way they treat us, they're adding to their guilt before God because that should cause them to repent. But for so many, it doesn't. So obviously, our intention in blessing them shouldn't be so, ha ha, they're, they're storing up wrath of themselves. You're going to have burning coals in your head someday. No, no, that, that, that's fine for David. It's not fine for you and me. Our desire for them should be we do want to see them prosper. We, we do want to bless them. And God willing, we want to see them come to Christ so that they're forgiven and they don't suffer the consequences. But if they don't, they're adding to their own demise. Our calling is 
to let God handle the vengeance, let him do as he sees fit, because he's the one who's ultimately offended, not us. And we're to feed those who are hungry, give those a drink who are thirsty. And going back then to verse 17 and following, what Paul's really doing is describing the renewed mind. The renewed mind, the transformed mind, the spirit-empowered mind of someone who is wronged, someone who is mistreated. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. He's using universal terms here, never. To anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. I don't love that translation. He's, he's talking just like we saw last week. He's talking about your thinking. Give thought to, consider what is good in front of everybody. Retaliation is not good. And you are always being observed. Think about it. You are a Christian. And you look for opportunities to tell other people that God has the right to punish you, but he will forgive every one of your sins if you'll put your trust in Jesus. He's a gracious and kind and forgiving God. And you look for opportunities to tell people that, but if you're the kind of person who, you know, they can, you can cross God and get away with it, but don't you dare cross me. They're never going to listen to your message of grace. They're going to be asking, why aren't you more gracious? It, it, it brings to mind the, the parable that Jesus taught of, of the, the man who was forgiven billions of dollars of debt. And then he goes out and he finds a guy that owes him 100 bucks. And he wants him thrown in jail because he owes him 100 bucks to pay up now. I think obviously that forgiveness and grace that he received did nothing in his heart. How dare he? call this guy to task for a hundred bucks when God, when the king, had the right to collect billions and he, and he forgave him the whole thing. People are always watching us. They want to they know, do you really show the kind of grace you're telling me God shows? Some of you had dads who on Sunday morning would take you to a place where you were told that God is a forgiving God and the rest of the week your earthly father didn't know how to give grace about anything. And then you had a hard time making the transition from an earthly father who was ruthless and relentless in his justice and demands, and then trying to figure out, but, but my heavenly father is somehow forgiving? People are watching us. People want to see in us some example of grace and forgiveness and forbearance. And Paul says, think about what is right in everybody's sight and do it. Don't pay back evil for evil. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, I will admit, Paul seems to suggest here that there is a limit, that at some point it's not possible anymore. And that's true. But how quickly do we jump to that? Oh, I just can't. I can't forgive him. This is just too far. This is just too much. And now they're going to realize my wrath. I mean, this one, was, this one really hurt. As far as it is possible with you, 
be at peace. Being at peace does not mean you don't acknowledge that someone's trying to start a war. Sometimes in counseling people, uh, you know, as they talk about the sins of their parents or the sins of someone else against them that's caused them this conflict, they want to just try to to downplay and, and immediately go to, well, I know they didn't mean it. You know, I know my dad didn't mean to beat me. Uh, does that even compute? He didn't mean to, to abuse me? Well, of course he did or he wouldn't have done it. Uh, and they want to downplay it. But that's not really showing grace when you deny the pain. Showing grace is when you acknowledge full well the intent and the pain and the hurt that someone inflicted on you, and then you say, but I release you of that. God doesn't turn a blind eye to our sin. Never. But he says, I see the fullness of your sin, and I forgive you. See, that's how you work peace in this context. When someone is trying to start a war, when someone is trying to mistreat you, when someone is mistreating you, and they're, they're, they're speaking ill, or they're, they're beating you, or whatever, and you say, yes, this hurts, yes, this is wrong, this is bad, you deserve my vengeance, but I will, I'm not going to hold you accountable, I'm letting it go. Let's strive for peace here. I'm not keeping a record of all the things you've done to me so that I can now throw it back in your face. I'm saying, yeah, you've done all this and, and more that I haven't written down, but I'm not going to hold you accountable for it. That's, that's the potential for real peace. And he says, as far as it's possible, don't let there be conflict between you and others. Sometimes that means we have to have hard conversations. Sometimes that means we do have to confront but there's a difference between confronting someone and wanting vengeance. Now, sometimes we also play games with our heads and our words, don't we? No, no, I, I need to go talk to them. You know, I, 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 they just need to know. Maybe they don't understand how hard this is for me. And then you go and, and everything comes out of your mouth as venom. And you're, you're act, acting vengeance in the name of, I, I, I'm just trying to get you to see what's going on here. But there is a way and there are times when we have to go to someone and sit down and say, look, here are the words you're saying. Here's the what you've done to me. And could I ask you to stop? Because I'm struggling now with anger and bitterness towards you. Can we work through this? Can we reconcile? Have I done something to provoke this or whatever? I'm not saying, Paul's not saying there's no place for conflict and confrontation. But the goal is peace. The goal is grace. The goal is forgiveness. The goal is let's move past this. If there's something we can do to stop this warfare, let's do it. I'd also say that there's a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. People who try to keep the peace by ignoring there is war never accomplish anything. You can't legislate this. You can't, you can't make a bunch of rules. You can't make a bunch of policies. You know, we see that in, in offices and, and organizations all the time, that there's conflict among the people in the, in the organization. Let's just make policies as though policies ever solved hardly anything, right? Sometimes you just got to go have a conversation, a hard conversation, and create a little bit of friction in order to get to the peace. Peacemaking, peacekeeping are not the same thing. But our goal should be peace. Our goal is that we are not seeking our own vengeance. We're not seeking our own retaliation. We leave that to God and let him do what he's going to do. Our goal is to love. Our goal is to let him 
take advantage of, of us. Maybe that's not our goal, but you know what I mean. That, that's our calling. Why? Because we call ourselves Christians. What's at the heart of the word Christian? Christ. Jesus, the one who hung on the cross, and as they are driving nails into his hands and feet and, and sticking a spear into his side and mocking him, says, Father, they don't understand what they're doing. Would you please forgive them? If ever there was an opportunity, a righteous opportunity for God to unleash his unmitigated wrath, it seems like it was right there. He said himself, I could call down legions of angels and wipe you out right now. But he didn't. What he said was, Father, forgive them. Well, we are followers of Christ. And if we're going to reflect Christ well, we have to be the kind of people that are not vindictive. To proclaim God's justice and say to people, I'm concerned for you because if you continue to sin against me and others, you are sinning against God and you're going to suffer his wrath. That can be a very loving thing. But the problem is when it's our reputation, our feelings that we're seeking to call them on, it's not about you. They're not ultimately going to suffer God's wrath because they hurt you. They're going to suffer God's wrath because they rebelled against him. And Jesus, as God, who received that rebellion, said, Father, forgive them. I, I share this story all the time. It's still one of the most amazing uh, stories in the scripture is when the apostle Peter gets all testosterone filled and says Jesus don't you even talk about dying you are not dying you're not going down there Jerusalem stop this talk they're not going to kill you I will give my life for you and Jesus says no you won't before tomorrow morning you're going to deny me three times that you even know me he says Peter Simon Simon Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. He'll eat you up, chew you up, and spit you out. And he's going to have his way with you for a few minutes. But when you turn, strengthen the brothers. You're going to betray me at my greatest point of need. You're going to tell people you don't even know me. Mister, I'm going to die for you, huh? And then when you come to your senses and you repent, I've got work for you. Not one time did Jesus pull him aside like after the resurrection say, hey, what's all this I'm going to die for you business? Where were you when I needed you? How dare you? I've, you're worthless to me because you left me in my time of need. You get none of that from Jesus. He says, Peter, do you love me? Good, then take care of my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Then be a good pastor. No vengeance, no vindictiveness, no revenge for the abandonment that Peter gave Jesus. 
said, I, I got work for you. When you get it right, I got work for you. That's who we follow. How can we come to this ceremony month after month and then turn around to someone who's mistreated us and wish them harm? We can't. It's inconsistent. It doesn't work that way. If you understand what God has forgiven you when you don't deserve it, and that God has not poured out his wrath and his judgment on you, he's given it to his son in your place. The more we reflect on this, the more we, we understand the depth of our sin and the love Jesus has shown us at the cross, then it gets a whole lot easier to say to someone who hurts us, you know what? How can I bless you? How can I help you? And if you end up held accountable for your sins, that's between you and God. I'm not going to hold you accountable. That's what's represented here. His ultimate forgiveness is a God who actually deserves and reserves the right for vengeance and says, I'm not going to take it out on you. I'm going to forgive and let it go. Father, as we partake of this Lord's Supper, as we hold in our hand the bread that represents the body of Christ broken and abused in my place, and, and the cup which represents the blood that he shed in judgment and, and suffering your judgment. As we eat and drink this, as we Think about the cross. Make us people who never repay evil for evil to anyone. Make us people who reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we interact with those who wrong us and mistreat us and who would like to put us on a cross. Make us people who do not allow evil to overcome us and our testimony of Christ, but make us people who triumph over evil with good because that's what Jesus Christ did. Father, make us worthy of the name of Christ and how we respond to those who would harm us. For the sake of Jesus, our Savior. Amen? Amen.